resurrection from the Old Testament perspective, the biblical doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, and I always offer you that moment so you can re-engage if you need to, and that's through confession of sin and um, otherwise to continue to engage as you enjoy fellowship with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we pause to bless and praise you for your so great salvation, your love for us, whereby through your Son, the only possible solution to our sin, you have secured our eternal life and what he did for us at the cross, satiating your wrath, making propitiation for us where we were unacceptable and far from you. He reconciled us to you by his blood. We thank you for our so great salvation in him, and we celebrate him every moment, Father, because You have seen uh, fit and been pleased to crush him for our sake, but not to leave him, as we read in the grave, but to resurrect him to eternal glory at your right hand and in the coming new heavens and new earth to rule under your auspices forever and ever. And we thank you for our destiny in that eternal calling and the joy it gives us through our sorrow today. Strengthen us with that joy as we pay attention to you in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying the doctrine of the resurrection in the Old Testament. There is a systematic approach. We're taking an intentional approach. So I'd refer you to your notes just by way of review tonight. By way of review, we were what got us off on this little excursus, this little doctrinal summary of how the Old Testament predicts and prophesies resurrection. What started us was that Isaiah 26, 19, and at the, toward the conclusion of what we call the little apocalypse of Isaiah 24 through 27, you have this challenging verse, which post-conservative evangelical Hebrew scholars uh, will say is the only verse that refers to the resurrection in the Old Testament. So they will disagree with the Lord Jesus Christ as the apostles re- reveal him uh, through the Spirit and Uh, the Gospels, and they'll disagree with the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And I'll take these men, the Lord Jesus, Paul, and Peter, over post-conservative evangelical Hebrew scholars. But but in Isaiah 26, 19, we do have the resurrection. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the Rephaim, to the departed spirits. My translation, they will live, who will live? Your dead ones, their corpses will rise. Taking that literally, it means dead people will come back to life. Their bodies, the physical bodies that they have died in will come back, this physical body. Wake up and cry out, you who lie in the dust, for dew of morning light will be your dew. And earth to the departed spirits will give birth or will drop. Earth will drop the departed spirits or from the earth they'll fall. And so uh, very similar translation, a little more um, technicolor maybe in the fine uh, detail, the dew of morning light. It's the dew of light will be your dew, but it's the morning. And so we've asked the question is, uh, should we expect resurrection in the Old Testament? And, and so what we've done is we've tracked it by first saying, have we read the Old Testament correctly? Let's ask the New Testament writers. And that is a, a technique that's often employed in Reformed theology to try to reinterpret the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament. And that's not what we're proposing at all. Where it wasn't Christological or focused on Messiah as they'll think in the Old Testament, 
They'll go get the revelation we have of Christ in the new, and then they'll go try to implant that into the old and reread the Old Testament uh, to be Christological and what, or, or Messianic. And what we believe is that the Old Testament was, by the authorial intent, by God's design, it was Messianic from Moses, from Genesis through Malachi. And it starts with um, the, the hope that man would rule as God's image bearer on earth in perfect harmony with God, and then man dropped the ball. Well, the restoration at the end of the Bible, that's Genesis. The, re- the restoration revelation is that man in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, is ruling on earth under God. The, the Bible is messianic from beginning to end. And the Old Testament, as you know, ends with the prophet Malachi, the way we uh, have ordered it, the way we've, we've bound it together, the Christian ordering of the Old Testament. And Malachi ends with a prophecy of the coming of Messiah. The Old Testament is messianic. And so the question is, should we expect resurrection from the messianic Old Testament? And this is fairly nuanced. No, we do not reinterpret plain statements of the Old Testament to comport with Christology that we get in the New Testament. No, we do not theologically reinterpret the Old Testament, dismissing it from its original context and its historical setting. We say that if you don't see Christology or Messianic revelation in that plain reading, you have misread it. And that's what Jesus says in the Gospels, and that's what Paul and Peter are saying. And that's what we're summarizing here under Roman numeral 2. Should we expect resurrection to be taught in the Old Testament? And so we saw the Lord Jesus go after the Sadducees in Matthew 22 and Luke 20. Remember that? Jesus corrected the Sadducees, and he said, you don't understand the logic of the Old Testament. That if he is the God, if God, Yahweh, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is the God of the living, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be resurrected. There has to be resurrection, you Sadducees who deny the resurrection. He rebukes the disciples, his own disciples, not of the twelve, but other disciples of his, on Resurrection Sunday in the story of the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and he teaches them all that the scriptures of the Old Testament say concerning him. And there's that one little verse in Luke 24 that we want, we want to hear that Bible study. And, uh, and we're hunting it. We, he told us, Luke told us that there is a treasure of Christology in the Old Testament, and we should go search. We should dig. And that's partly what this study intends to do. <clears throat> but I confess I need my New Testament uh, interpreters to show me the way. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're seeing how the New Testament writers handle the doctrine of resurrection from the Old Testament. In Paul's preaching, which we've been studying, we looked at Acts chapter, remember going through chapter 21 through 26 a couple of weeks ago? We did the whole story of Paul anticipating his trip to Rome. And twice he bore witness to his meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, not the road to Emmaus. But in both uh, Acts 22 before the men of Jerusalem and in Acts 26 before Agrippa, he proclaims that the scriptures are looking for the resurrection of Messiah, that the Messiah would be resurrected. And so that's one of the big planks in seeing Paul's teaching. He teaches that the scriptures are looking for the resurrection of Christ. They're looking for the Jewish Messiah, the anointed one, the one that they've been waiting for, to be resurrected, which means he has to die. And they're also looking for that too. And there are places that are very explicit about this, like in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, prophecies of the death and suffering of Messiah. And we also have prophecies of his resurrection. Last Sunday, we looked at what he said in 
the Jewish synagogue in southern Galatia, where he is well-received. Last Wednesday, he was well-received, and he also proclaimed the resurrection um, as a plank of what he's saying, as the expectation that we should have from the Old Testament. And then you have 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, where we have, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Let's all say it together. According to the Scriptures. What does that mean, according to the Scriptures? That the Old Testament Scriptures are saying Christ the Messiah would die for us. When you hear Christ, you should think Jesus, the anointed of Israel. Jesus, God's Israelite anointed um, designated king. That's what Christ means. It means the Messiah of Israel. For our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day altogether now, According to the scriptures, the most important passage, arguably, most would agree, on the doctrine of resurrection in general in the scriptures is 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul's appeal to the Corinthians, who have some of whom have denied the resurrection of the dead. They've gotten very clever and said, well, this doesn't happen. Like that was an original thought. And 1 Corinthians 15 is written as a correction Uh, for this misapprehension that they've got in Corinth. And I have elected tonight that we should spend the time, we should look through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we should work through it, answer some questions along the way. Let's do an exposition of this central passage where we have multiple statements expecting resurrection from the Old Testament, and it demonstrates a very important principle. Tonight is entrance ramp into Christianity, into the faith that that we share. Those of you who are more advanced uh, karate practitioners, um, sorry, karate practitioners, those of you that are more advanced, there's plenty of meat for you. But this doctrine that we're studying is the beginning of really understanding what it means to be a Christian and what our hope is. This is the kind of doctrine that new believers that aren't really even baptized yet, but they're proselytes, they're, I should say, they're they're, um, catechumens in the first and second, third centuries, just knowing the resurrection enabled people who hadn't even yet been baptized to go into their Colosseum, to go into the Roman persecution and be torn apart by animals and eventually beheaded because they believed in the resurrection of Christ and what that meant for them. This doctrine is central and it is a constant staple to our encouragement and our hope. And if it is to you, as it must be at times, in as much as it is to you something that seems like it's far off because it happened a long time ago or far off in your future, I've got decades left to live and I'm not really worried about life or death or the resurrection to the extent that it isn't driving your daily confidence in God, that he's promised this for you, to that extent, we're not really living the Christian life. We're really not. We're not hoping in the Lord. We're not trusting in him. And uh, my prayer for you is that as we look to this basic principle through 1 Corinthians 15, we will be uh, reinforced so that just like those new believers, uh, the, the story, the tale of Perpetua, who wasn't even baptized yet, but was tortured for her faith, never recanted, and finally beheaded because the, the, um, the various methods could not get her to recant her faith. Just like the people that have attested their faith in Christ through the centuries under persecution in this present phase, not of Jacob's trouble, but of tribulation, as Satan's world rages against the gospel of Jesus Christ, this doctrine should support you and fortify you and make you um, have the kind of Christian courage that fortified our uh, forebears. 
Peter, as the legend goes, was crucified. Jesus said as much he would be uh, before uh, Jesus ascended. But Peter was crucified, as, as legend has it, upside down, the histories say, because he said he wasn't worthy to be crucified right side up as a Savior had been since he had denied him. The church history is full of people who, in expectation of the resurrection, because the whole point was that Jesus was raised. He's not just this Israeli or this Israelite who was crucified by the Romans. There are lots of those. But this one came back, was seen by hundreds of people, as Paul will say. This is the entrance ramp, if you will, to a radical or discipled Christian experience that is very different from the world we live in. Because what we're talking about to the world sounds like foolishness, uh, and that's, the, that's Paul's language, or science fiction, which is the way it would be received or perceived now. And there are lots of counterfeit science fictions, but this is not a fiction. This is history, and it blows our minds because it's outside of the norm of what we'd expect in history. So let's go through what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and um, let's see what's happening here. Yes, we should. Expect the resurrection. There we go. I'm calling 1 Corinthians chapter 15 one great correction. And I've got an image up there that I want you to remember. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I think what you see up there is a beautiful... I think there are very few things more beautiful in the contraptions we've come up with than that thing behind me. I've always loved the classic 30s Harley Davidson motorcycles. I think they're gorgeous, especially the red and white ones. I've always thought they were so cool. Now, why did I use that image? Good guess, but no. It's a beautiful thing. This is a museum piece, I think, in Spain, where they got the image for this. Um, but why would I use this beautiful picture to describe what's happening in 1 Corinthians 15? Because it turns out that like every segment of 1 Corinthians... It is a whipping. It is a correction that Paul is bringing to false doctrines that have been embraced by some of the Corinthians, and he's correcting them and wearing them out with, for their false doctrine. Fred Gibson would say he was wearing them to a frazzle. So, um, so actually, I did an image search for the word knucklehead, and this comes up. <laughs> because in the 30s, the OHV motors for Harleys were called knuckleheads. And I thought, what a fantastic way to describe this jewel of Paul's argument for resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 that we have, and it's so central, but we have it because Paul is correcting them for their embrace of false doctrine. He's calling them knuckleheads in 1 Corinthians 15. And for us, it's a beautiful thing. So I thought that was fitting. I'll show you an outline. I encourage you to read along with me as we cruise through. In verses 1 through 8, we have that Paul is going to preach. He says, the gospel that I preach includes a well-attested resurrection of Christ, a well-attested resurrection of Christ. And this passage has been used very wisely to great effect to explain what is the gospel. And what the gospel is not, beloved, is the good stuff you're doing because you love Jesus. That is not the gospel. Sharing the gospel with others is a good thing you do because you love Jesus. That is not the gospel that you are saying it. The gospel needs to be what we're saying, and it is not this. Well, you can't be a Christian and do that. 
Well, this thing you're doing, you're going to have to put that aside if you want to come to Christ. Somehow, as an, a reprobate, non-regenerate person with no Holy Spirit and no hope, you need to deal with that sin, and then we'll talk about believing in Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus did. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. And that's the good news because the bad news is us. That's not the, we aren't the, the good news. We're the bad news. And we need a Savior. And so Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, some are put off, like me, when they cursorily read this, unless you believed in vain. And, they, and that immediately some will say, well, there must be two kinds of believing. There's believing in vain, and there's believing in truth. And so there's head belief and heart belief. And uh-uh, that's not what Paul's talking about in context. It's a little more faith than none at all, mustard seed faith, Jesus says. That is the issue. It is the childlike faith, like one of these. It's not sophisticated. It's not uh, a heavy-duty, lifelong commitment of, look at what I'll do for you, God. It is, I trust in what you've done for me. I'm putting my faith in Christ, and my only hope is in him and his work. So why does he say, unless you've believed in vain? Because he's wearing out the knuckleheads. Because some have denied the resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, he's going to say again and again, our faith is vain. We're in our sins. There is no hope. So if you have believed in vain, is Paul indicating that the whole thing depends on this doctrine he's going to develop, that he's delivered to them, and that if, they haven't, if, it hasn't, if it's not true, then their belief is in vain. So he's, he's introducing the problem of the denial of the resurrection in verse 2. That's what it means, unless you believed in vain. It's Paul being uh, ironic in a sanctified irony. Unless you believed in vain, and you haven't because Christ has been raised. That's the argument. That's what's happening here. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Do we have some technicolor on that? I believe we do. For I delivered to you in the first place what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, kata tas graphos, according to the scriptures. Scripture in Greek is graphe, where we get the word autograph or graph paper. Photograph, it means writing. Graphe, it's the, it's the word for scripture with the writings. And then in verse 4, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel that Paul has preached. And some will say, well, you don't have to believe in just the, uh, the, the resurrection. You can just believe in the, in the cross, and you don't have to believe in the resurrection for the gospel. Paul says, there is no gospel without the resurrection. And so what does the resurrection accomplish? It's the confirmation. It's the confirmation of the things that we're saying. It is the historical evidence of these things that the Christ has come. We have lots of people attesting to Christ, but Paul says in this passage there are 500 that are living in his day who could attest to the risen Christ to his resurrection. And so this is the gospel. In verse 5, while we're at it, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. That's Peter. And then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. That means they're dead. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. In verses 1 through 8, Paul says, I have said nothing to you but a well-attested resurrection gospel. 
You and I don't have anything in common if you're denying the resurrection because it's the, it's the confirmation of the gospel. And we don't have a good man who died under unrighteous circumstances. That's true, but it's so short of the truth that it's false. We have a good man who is God in the flesh of man who died for our sins on the cross and did not remain dead but rose from the dead according to the scriptures. All right, in verses 9 through 11, Paul's ministry of resurrection life in summary. For I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Well, wait a second, Paul. That was before you became a believer, and it was. It was before you met the Lord on the road to Damascus. That's right. And Paul says, and I deserve to be the least. I'm the least of the apostles, not even fit to be called an apostle because of my persecution. Paul is a trophy of the magnificent grace of God. And that's what he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm an apostle. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Did you hear it? It's not empty. We don't have an empty faith. Corinthian knuckleheads who have denied the resurrection. So what are you believing in? That's the point. That's the, it's all sewn together. If you pull that thread, you've unraveled the whole thing. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God with me. That's a mouthful for Paul to attest to his efforts and his labors. How can Paul say he labored more than all the rest? Because what the others are doing in Jerusalem, he's doing on uh, uh, Shanks' mare. He's out uh, with the most developed calf muscles of the ancient world across all those Roman roads that were the internet system of that day. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, we have history that suggests that Thomas went to India and other, other apostles you know, traveled, and we have Peter went to Babylon to the largest uh, Jewish community outside of, outside of Israel, out of Jerusalem, would have been in Babylon in his day when he writes to, about the people in Babylon. He means Babylon. Um, yes, you did have the travels of others, but Paul says under the inspiration of the Spirit, he labored more than all of them, but it was the grace of God with him. Can I do a little bit of, a, of an encouragement for you? That's a life verse right there. I labor more than all the rest, he says. In verse 10, but I labor even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And so notice he says it and then he takes it back because that's the nature of the spiritual life. I'm doing it, but it's really not me. I'm doing it, but I don't get credit for it because it's really the Spirit of God working in me. That's the nature of the Christian spiritual life. Paul was conscious and intentional every step of the way. But it was the grace of God working through him, and he would give credit to that. And that is something that we take on faith, something that we want to um, recognize in our daily walk. Again, this is the entrance ramp to a Christian life. Your Christian life, as a believer, new or, or uh, young at heart, okay, your Christian life is the work of God through you, but it's your choosing and acting in that power that he supplies. And you cannot blame it on the Spirit if you don't walk by the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled by the Spirit. We're commanded to walk by the Spirit. These are on us to choose and God to supply the power. In verses 12 through 19, the illogic of resurrection denial in Corinth. He's going to say, okay, knuckleheads, it makes no sense. And that's really the topic in verses 12 through 19. It makes no sense. Now, if Christ is preached, oh, uh, what, I wanted to say something about this. There's a book out there that one of my favorite things written by John Nelson Darby. 
If you want to look at the genealogy of how I uh, am here, the way I am, it would be great-great-grandpa uh, in the faith, sort of. Darby to Brooks to Schofield to Chafer to Theme to me. That's the story. That's the genealogy of me, uh, theologically. And Darby um, wrote a book in response to one of the Newman brothers. There was a famous... Um, uh, event in the 19th century, infamous to us, where a lot of um, a lot of seekers in the Anglican Church, looking at the Malays in the Church in England, went back to the Roman Catholic system. That's why J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Roman Catholic, um, because of this Puseyism movement that happened in England. And um, um, one of the uh, famous defectors from Anglicanism was was Cardinal Newman. And he became this really important theologian at the last part, the last half of the 19th century. He had a brother, and I forget the names, which Henry or Car- I forget the names of these guys, but I know the Newman brothers, one of them became a cardinal denying uh, the Reformation. And in the Catholic Church, he was this great uh, trophy for the Catholics. And then there was uh, the other one that basically rejected Christ and the gospel after uh, a life of. Um, of proclamation. And uh, he wrote a book denying Christ and denying the supernatural. And Darby wrote a response book. And what's interesting to me about it is Newman's book was, um, I think it's Francis Newman, wrote, wrote um, something like 128-page little tract. And, and Darby's response was like 350 pages. <laughs> That's how you answer. And it was called The Irrationalism of Infidelity. And I just love that name, and it's a great example of apologetics, the mindset of apologetics and Bible-believing Christians as we're getting back to the Bible out of, he, Darby's coming out of Anglican, back to the Bible, and, um, and he represents the, the flow that, uh, kind of some of the beginning of the flow of, look, you've got a Bible and you have a brain and you need to study, and, and don't be weird but be consistent, be intentional with the grammar. And the method we use, I've studied this out, the method we use is very much, uh, generally speaking, Darby's method, except where he theologically interprets the Bible and misses things like baptism of believers and things like that. Nevertheless, in verses 12 through 19, you have the illogic of resurrection denial in Corinth. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? What? They're basically Sadducean. There's a sect or a subset, a little faction developing in carnal Corinth. Chapter 2, they're carnal. They're like walking like mere men. They're denying the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So it doesn't make sense. You, you can't be a Christian and deny resurrection. Well, no one's been resurrected. No, one person has been resurrected. One. Not Elijah. He hasn't been resurrected. He was translated not Enoch, he was translated. These guys didn't die. Jesus died and rose into a resurrection body in glory. Not even Christ has been raised if there's no resurrection. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. That's what he's alluding to in verse 2. If you believed in vain, if there is no resurrection, that's the topic that he's developing. And so hopefully that clears up if you're wondering, like, what's, what's believing in vain? Believing in vain is when the object of your faith is not real. That's believing in vain. Does that exist today? Oh, absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. If we would just reinforce the children's tendencies 
to not know that they're a boy or a girl. If we would just step out on faith and trust the process that whatever the children said they want to be is what they can be, and then go ahead and give them puberty blockers so that they cannot go through puberty and grow out of that phase of, of gender dysphoria, then, then on faith we can just believe that, that they can be their true selves by blocking their natural processes chemically, chemically castrating them, and then when time comes, we can give them cross-sex hormones. See, that's step two, cross-sex cross hormones because we block puberty. And so now we give the, the, uh, uh, an attempt at puberty after the fact. And then we'll round it out with a healthy dose of genital mutilation. And, and that is some kind of faith, people, that that's going to solve the suicide problem of children that have gender dysphoria. That's going to solve it. That, I mean... I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, to, to, to borrow the, the title of one of my favorite books on apologetics, Norman Geisler. No, there's a, they're, they're believing in vain. They're believing uh, something that isn't so. And the numbers are coming in. They're, they'll come in late. If we get to look at it, couple generations from now, if we get to look back and there's any sanity that, that says biology really is real, and we look back on this season that we're in where they're, where they're mutilating children, and they say, they, they will have to say, what were we doing? We had no solutions, and we said, follow the science, and the science had no, they, they had no data. It was all faith. Follow the scientism. And um, by the way, the science... By the way, on, on transgenderism, the science for children and child development and all that was pioneered by a monster named John Money. And you can look him up. And he wrote journal articles that were peer-reviewed and, and respected as he was doing a monstrous project in secret on twins who both killed themselves at, at the conclusion of his monstrous efforts of, of saying, if you raise one of these twin boys as a girl, he'll be a girl. And he wasn't, and it, it's not true, and it doesn't work, and it's something that people are taking on faith, and now it is the standard of care. And um, it's just an example, but boy, that's vain faith. That's believing something that isn't true. Another vain faith of our day is if we rearrange the furniture, if we change the system, then we'll get a better outcome on people's lives. They'll have better lives if we uh, restrict people's volition with their property, for example they'll have a better lives. And you have to take that on faith because there's no data that says that. There's no way to demonstrate that. And so it's just a faith claim. It's, it's vain faith. We're full of it. The whole world's full of it. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. The topic is the resurrection. The illustrations may be helpful, maybe not. But let's move on. Your faith is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. This whole paragraph, 12 through 19, is that it's insane. It's illogical that you would claim Christ and deny the resurrection. That's the whole topic. That's the whole argument as we kind of recon by force this entire chapter. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless. Worthless, you're still in your sins. Vain faith in 1 Corinthians 15 is faith in a false proposition. It's faith in something that isn't true. It's relying on Christ where you don't have a risen Christ. And so he's, he's telling these people that are trying to do algebra that they've forgotten their, their plus and minus facts. They don't know how to do addition and subtraction. The writer of Hebrews says that we need to move on from these basic doctrines of the resurrection. Well, he does want to teach them advanced Christology, advanced doctrine of who Christ is. But, but hey, you need to be aware and enjoying the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ every day. It is basic. It's foundational. It's fundamental to our faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. In verse 17, you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, the Apostle Paul has multiple times in this passage said that the people who have died physically have fallen asleep, and we need to be careful. We absolutely, based on other passages that talk more specifically to it, we absolutely deny soul sleep as the reality for someone who has physically died but is a believer. So that like they're dead, but then they get resurrected on, the, on resurrection day, and then they're, they're back alive. We believe in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and other places in conscious bliss when you're absent from this body and present with the Lord. And Paul says while you're in this earthly tent, you're present in this body and absent from the Lord. And the thing you want to be in his timing is absent from the body and present with the Lord. That's the conscious bliss that is your lot uh, when you um, must face the horror of physical death, the joy of presence with your Savior in anticipation of our resurrection. That's where our beloved dead are. So why does Paul say they've fallen asleep? Two reasons. The most important one is the topic at hand. Physical death is a temporary reality. It is a temporary thing that your body is dead because this body will be made new. This body will be raised incorruptible. This body of corruption, he says, will be raised incorruptible. It doesn't mean you get a new body issued. It means this body gets reissued. He recycles. And we're like Jesus in resurrection. Here, Thomas, feel. Thomas, you can, you can put your hand. It's the same body in resurrection. I contend that the scars Jesus carries in his resurrection body are trophies, and I don't believe you're going to be wearing your scars. But the Bible doesn't say that. I just, that's what I believe. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What a wonderful thing to say. Think about being that person. My only real hope in this entire life hangs on the fact of the resurrection of Christ. And it's the most important thing to me, and I've built my entire life on that basis. So I can say, if it's not true, of all the people on earth, you should feel sorry for me the most. Oh, let's be that. I want to be like Paul and say, if there's no resurrection, you should feel sorry for me more than anyone you know. Because my whole existence is hanging on the resurrection. I'm not hedging. I don't have little side hustles. It's all about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And that is modeling for us, I contend. Then Paul goes from the, the refutation of, of their illogic in verses 12 through 19 to 
affirming the resurrection, verses 20 through 28. It's a beautiful passage, this little chunk, where he says, there is coming our resurrection and the coming kingdom where Jesus subjects himself to the Father as we have always anticipated. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Paul affirms the resurrection. In case anyone in Corinth was confused, hey, knuckleheads, Christ has been raised. For since by a man came death, and this is the, the, the theology logic, this is the reasoning in terms of history and God's design, why you have to have a human to come pay our sins on the cross, and it's all part of this position in Adam. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all would be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. See, there is nobody who's been resurrected yet because Christ is the firstfruits. It's only him. And other examples you could say of like Lazarus, resuscitation, that's a picture of resurrection. That's not the resurrection. The, the saints who uh, got up from their graves after the, uh, after the crucifixion when there was an earthquake, that's not a resurrection. It, it, it's not a resurrection. They're not in their resurrection bodies. Jesus, I contend, is the first fruits of resurrection. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So it's, an, it's in sequence. Is the audio too loud in the room? Is it just, is it okay? Okay, because I feel like I'm holding back. Those who are Christ at his coming, and then comes the end. So we've got the resurrection of Christ at his coming. It's very vague the way he describes that. And then he says, then comes the end. And what is the end that we're all looking for? When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So he has established his kingdom. And in that kingdom, he has abolished all rule, authority, and power that is in contention against the creator. And if you compare what Paul says here with what John sees in the book of Revelation, we're talking about the end of Revelation chapter 20 after the final rebellion of Gog and Magog against Christ led by Satan and his fallen angels. When that is finally vanquished, Satan and the fallen angels are thrown into the lake of fire, that is the conclusion of his rule to subject all under his authority. And so that transition to the new heavens and new earth is not the end of the kingdom. It is the end of the subduing portion to establish the kingdom. It's a thousand-year reign that is the first thousand years of the eternal kingdom of David's greater son on David's throne forever and ever. And the after-thousand-years part we call the eternal state or the new heavens and new earth. He must, when he's established, abolished all rule and authority and power in verse 24. And then we have this little excursus Paul makes on how this is all going to work out with the father and the son. The father-son relationship is an eternal relationship. And in position, in role, there is the subordinate position of son to father. And that doesn't change for all eternity. And it doesn't mean that the son is any less God than the father. It's just that in the economic trinity, they have different functions, father and son. Jesus must, in verse 25, reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
as the Old Testament prophesies we've seen in Isaiah 25. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's God has done that with man in Psalm 8.6. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he's accepted uh, who he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And this little footnote Paul makes that, of course, the son is not ever over the father. He has, the father hasn't put himself under the son. He's put all of his works under the son. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to, to Jesus, to the Son, to, uh, to the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God, that's the Father, may be all in all. And this is a really important passage to understand the doctrine that we have rightly and biblically called the economic trinity. The economic model of the trinity is where we understand not that we have different Essence, essential uh, makeup in the persons of the Godhead. It's one essence, but there are different functions. That's the oikonomia, the different functions or roles that they have. And it is the basis, this doctrine of Scripture, that the Father and the Son are of one essence, but the Father is the Father and the Son is the Son. This relationship, this understanding really helps us with marriage, helps us understand husband and wife, different functions, same value. Not the same essence, but the same value, the same uh, honor. Uh, she's a fellow heir of life, uh, Peter says in First Peter 3, 7. Well, that's Paul's aside on the Trinity, and he, Paul has to chase that rabbit. He has to. And, and there's no clearer passage that I can point to that shows you this concept of the sonship versus the father and the different roles between father and son. And verses 29 through 34, but we're back to the woodshed. He's going to point out again the absurdity of denying the resurrection, the absurdity of resurrection denial in verses 29 through 34. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? That doctrine uh, of the baptism for the dead is baffling. It's one of the questions that Bible-believing uh, scholars will, will wrestle with. The, the Greek scholar will, will try to figure out what this phrase is doing. The, um, the theologian is just, you know, he's trying to come up. With, is this proxy baptism? Is there, uh, so we had people that died that weren't believers, and so we're going to baptize someone, someone else in their name. For the dead, is that what that means? That's what the LDS people do. They do proxy baptisms. They baptize Hitler a number of times. Uh, proxy baptism. Um, uh, well, they've done everybody. You've been baptized probably proxy by. There's enough of this going on. If you have any family members or friends, you've probably been proxy baptized. You know, so you got that going for you. But um, is that what he's even talking about? And uh, most people, if you look at various commentaries, most Bible-believing commentaries will say, we're really not sure what it is, but Paul seems to be distancing himself from it because he says they. Well, they do it. And um, one possibility is the phrase they, the, the, why are they baptized for them? Maybe it is that them refers to the dead, and the dead and as a plural is how you talk about someone who is dead. And um, this is, it, it fits nicely with the context, but it doesn't make any sense to be baptized in the name of Christ if Christ isn't raised. The dead is Jesus. He's not the resurrected if he's not resurrected. It doesn't make any sense to be baptized in the name of Christ if the Christ isn't raised because the whole point of baptism is raising. And I like that elegant solution, but it's probably a cheat. <laughs> um, but it, but the, and the problem with that interpretation is the phrase for the dead. 
Huper plus the genitive of Necron. Um, it, it, he was raised from the dead. So there is an association of Jesus with the Necron, the Hoi Necron. So, um, or Hoi Necron. It, it could be uh, that, but, um, but Huper plus genitive usually means in place of or for the benefit of. So your baptism isn't for the benefit of Christ. It's in Christ. It's, it's in union with Christ. If anybody's benefiting, it's you. And so it's, it's rough with the language. But um, what you can conclude in context is that this practice that some may be doing, it doesn't make any sense. My interpretation that Christ would be the dead one, be of the dead. And so since he's dead, there's no point in baptism for Christ. If that's true, then it works with the context very closely because it is absurd that people would be baptized for him. Nevertheless, nobody has, that I've read, a satisfactory answer on that, and that's one of my favorite commentary statements people make on this, is we really don't have a satisfactory answer. But that it says it in this verse doesn't make it a basis for a practice. It's a description of what some people are doing, and there's a lot of stuff that was happening in the first century we don't know about. And so he's just saying, for example, perhaps look at this other knucklehead thing people are doing. Why are they doing that if he's not raised, if if the dead are not raised? But then he switches from that weird practice that he's describing, perhaps, to verse 30. Why is he being persecuted if there's no resurrection? He says, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which uh, you and I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If there's no resurrection, what am I living for as I'm dying daily in this uh, persecution? He outlines it more clearly, more explicitly in 2 Corinthians 11. He tells you what the brand marks of Jesus look like, the many times he was beaten to a pulp and uh, shipwrecked and all the suffering that he endured for our Lord's sake. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. You have salvation. You have resurrection, eternal life because of Jesus' resurrection. And I am in service to this, and I suffer for this every day. And you, knuckleheads, have eternal life because by God's grace I've been able to, uh, to be the one to tell you about it. If from human motives I fought with the wild beast at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Again, he quotes Isaiah. Now, what he's saying here about wild beasts at Ephesus is probably not the Colosseum or the, or the local gladiatorial ring. He's a Roman citizen. He has not been arrested yet like he's going, like, like he's going to be toward the end of Acts. This is, this is uh, you know, and it is toward the conclusion of his ministry as he, is he working. But what, what we're saying here is that um, he was, there's no indication that Paul or that any Christians in the first century were were uh, tortured by letting wild beasts attack them as they did later under the DCN and other Roman persecutions. But what does he mean? Most of us think that the wild beasts are a reference to the, uh, the crowds, the rage that he received at Ephesus as he preached Christ and uh, it caused the uh, Ephesian riot and you have great as Artemis of the Ephesians and the religious fervor that issued forth in um, a, a riot. Um, and he fought in Ephesus for a long time. He was daily in the school of Tyrannus proclaiming Christ uh, for two years. And so what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The, the beasts in Ephesus are a way of describing the opposition he receives constantly in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
In verse 33, do not be deceived. Let's bring a proverb. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. What does he mean, stop sinning? Oh, well, obviously, Brother Wesley, we don't sin anymore. Or those that corrupted what Wesley said, we've, I've achieved it. I've gotten to the higher level, and I don't sin anymore. Brethren, stop sinning. No, in context, the sin is the denial of the resurrection. It's the whole point of the passage. Become sober-minded as you, as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. You knuckleheads saying there's no resurrection. There's no future for Christianity in your circles if this word gets ascendancy, if people start saying this. They say, yeah, we used to believe in Christ, but then we learned there's no resurrection, so what's the point? In verses 35 through 49, the longest chunk, you have two questions, and Paul answers them. He, he lists both questions, and then he answers them in sequence. Two questions that challenge our hope. Two questions that would further argue against resurrection that Paul answers, and he does it very colorfully. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? Well, uh, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. How about God made everything and holds it all together? Why is this a problem? But how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Two questions. How are they raised? And with what kind of body do they come? The first question is, God raises them. And the second question is, with an eternal body to inherit eternity. Two questions, two answers. It's that simple. But verse 36 gives us the colorful answer to question number one. How are the dead raised? You fool! I love it, and that's why the knucklehead picture. You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. If you sow a seed, it has to die to grow into the plant. And that which you sow, you don't sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. Meaning, if you think about a sunflower, right? We're headed toward that, that phase of, of uh, 2023. Think about a sunflower. You don't get a big, beautiful sunflower over there at Buttonwood Farms and in the pot and then say, oh, good, I'm going to plant me a sunflower and then dig a big hole and bury that whole plant in its pot and then cover it up and say, we've planted a sunflower. That would be the body Okay, you're not sowing the body that's going to be, you're sowing the seed that has to die, and then it grows into the big, beautiful sunflower plant. That's the image Paul is giving you, uh, well, not you, but those that he's calling you fool in verse 36 and 37. But verse 38 is the answer to the question, how are the dead raised? God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. God is the power of resurrection. God in his omnipotence raises us from the dead. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. This is the answer to the question of what kind of body do they come? So we're going to say there's different kinds of bodies, even for animals. There's also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So we've got different classifications of bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one glory, and the glory of the earthly is another glory. Notice, just keep it together, that he's saying there's different classifications, different types for different purposes in different realms. Verse 41, there's also one glory of the sun, another, another of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Well, the Bible's not a science book, but Paul could look up at the heavens and say, some things are brighter than others. 
And you know what? We're saying the same thing with sophisticated telescopes. We know a little bit more because we've got sharper instruments, but there's nothing Paul has said that has been contradicted by what we've discovered. But then he says, look at the way things are different, and there are different glories in the heavenly bodies. So also is the resurrection of the dead. There are differences, apparently, based on 41, in glory of the resurrection. Who shines the brightest in resurrection? Beloved, the day star must arise in our hearts. Jesus in transfiguration in Matthew 17 was dazzling. No one's going to shine like Jesus in resurrection, but we will be like him in resurrection. There's differences. There will be differences in the resurrection. So also is the resurrection from the dead. It is sown, and now he goes all the, the contrast. It's sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable body. So we, our body dies, and it's this rotting corpse. And then we get raised an imperishable body that will never die. That is incorruptible, and I mean morally incorruptible somehow. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised in a spiritual body. Hope everybody's hearing the now and then the later. The now is I'm weak and now I'm corruptible and now I'm perishing. Then none of these things. It's so encouraging. This is the entrance ramp to Christian experience. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it's written the first man in Genesis 2-7 became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See how Paul does the bookends, the first Adam, last Adam? Christ is the fulfillment of what Adam was designed to be. So we're all in Adam and dead, and in Christ we're all made alive. And that's Romans 5. And it's also 1 Corinthians 15. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. I die from this body, and then I'm raised into the spiritual body that is going to inherit eternity, as we'll read. The first man is from the earth, earthy. From the earth, earthy. How is man from the earth? The Lord God, foreign man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and he became a living being. The man became a living being, that, a living soul in Genesis 2. So the earth, the, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. The resurrection is not characterized by the dirt, but by heavenly spiritual property. As, the earth, as is the earthy, so are also those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, so we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So he, he gave you a lot of answer to that question with what kind of body. The answer is heavenly, incorruptible, imperishable, glorious, because of what comes next. So we have two questions that challenge our hope. And thankfully, after telling them they're fools... Paul gives us such magnificent encouragement about what's coming. Christianity is not looking down. It is not saying, I heard or I'm tired. Or, no, no, I don't know if I'm going to make the things that I want to get done or I'm disappointed about this thing that didn't quite happen and my life is... No, that is not the Christian life. That is life, and these are the details of life, but the Christian life is lived up and out, looking at what Jesus has promised us, what God has promised us in his son. It is lived like Jesus uh, endured the cross, despising the shame because of the joy that was set before him. And that's what this passage ultimately must do for us. We need to rejoice in our guaranteed and coming resurrection. And he concludes the chapter in verses 50 through 58 with the necessity of the resurrection to our very destiny. You have been marked out for imperishable, eternal glory and inheritance, and you can't have it unless you've got a body that can take it. 
We right now have this treasure in earthen vessels. The earthen vessel thing's going away. The resurrection body is spiritual and glorious and undefiled and imperishable. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, meaning I need to be transformed. Nor does the perishable, that which is dying, inherit the imperishable, that which can't die. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, why did he say that? Because as we are right now, we can't inherit what God wants to give us. We can't inherit the kingdom. It's, it's impossible. We need more horsepower. We need resurrection body to rule with Christ in the resurrection. Inherit means you own it. The whole basis for ownership in Scripture is always tied up with the word inherit. When God parceled out the land to Israel, to the tribes of Israel, he called it their inheritance. It's a big deal. And this is, you know, the, Satan, uh, the Satan-driven materialists want to say the problem is the property. God is the ultimate distributor of property by the doctrine of inheritance. So what about your inheritance? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment of the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. This is the doctrine of the rapture. He doesn't tell you when in terms of other prophetic events and sequence, but he does say that there is a generation of believers on earth, the body of Christ, who will not experience physical death. We will not all sleep, but absolutely, dogmatically, without any question, we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written in Isaiah 25, verse 8, which we saw a couple weeks ago, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Hosea 13, 14. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He started with knuckleheads and fools. And he ends with a proclamation of victory for all who have Jesus Christ, including the knuckleheads who somehow have denied the resurrection. Remember, Paul is only writing to the Corinthian saints. He's only writing to believers in Christ, but they're acting like mere men as much as they're making divisions over who baptized them or who is their favorite preacher. They're acting like unbelievers. They're acting like babies in Christ. They're acting like carnal believers or mere men, as he says, acting like unbelievers. And that's important because that's the audience that he's writing to. How are some of you foolish people denying the resurrection? Notice he doesn't call unbelievers fools. He doesn't write to the Galatian unbelievers. He writes to the foolish Galatians who started well and who's corrupted you. He's writing to believers who have gotten into false doctrine. And be absolutely certain believers can get into false doctrine. Paul warns it in Acts 20, you, there's going to be savage wolves from among your ranks, you Ephesian elders who are not going to spare the flock. It's a big problem in church history, and Paul called it. Yeah, believers can get into false doctrine, even denying the resurrection, as unthinkable as that is. They can't proclaim the gospel as they deny the resurrection, but they can be headed to a resurrection that they themselves deny. It's apparently possible by the text. I find it inescapable. And I know that maybe for some of you that's a theological problem. How can they not believe in the thing that they did believe in? How is that possible? Hey, have you ever had a moment where you had to reevaluate if you really believe? Have you not had that where you think, there's a volitional component here. I am trusting the one who has done so much for me. 
And that's where, to me, apologetics kicks in. I love the cosmological argument. I haven't seen Christ, but I've seen the blue sky. I've seen the properties of water. There's a reason why there is something rather than nothing. And the most satisfying answer to me, and it may be because of my regenerate person, but the most satisfying answer to me is someone did that. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, what do you do with this? This is the entrance ramp to Christian experience, the doctrine of the resurrection. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul quoted the Old Testament quite a bit. But in this passage, the, the classic teaching passage for Paul on the resurrection, we see at least two key things. Is that he has to have a resurrected Christ, Messiah of Israel. And you have to have resurrected believers. And that is the substance of Paul's teaching on the resurrection, which we'll look at um, Peter's substance of teaching next time. Father, we thank you for the word and the challenge it presents to us to trust you. Father, when we're suffering, when we're hurting, when we're going through the, the struggles of this life, we don't feel like reading. We don't feel like thinking. Thank you that life isn't our feelings. Life is to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's my prayer for us, Father, that you would give us what the Apostle Paul describes, that joy, the wonderful joy that victory is ours in Christ because we have the risen Christ. Help us rem remember daily that we're headed to a resurrection that Jesus has begun as the first fruits. It's our inevitable destiny, and that should give us such great stability as we trust you step by step, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.